uh, say a few things. That'll help me get a get a check on the mic. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you here today in the nice, cool room. Uh, <laughs> uh, beautiful facility. I saw the Coliseum on the way up. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> that was uh, that was a nice addition last year. I really enjoyed coming in one morning, and suddenly there's a Coliseum in our stairwell. More to come. Ah, fantastic. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a debate coach and humanities instructor at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. What's the Res is a podcast dedicated to equipping high school debaters with resolution analysis, technique, and interviews uh, with the people who make debate possible. We do a lot of other things uh, as well. We also record real debates by real people. If you want to check those out, you can do so by visiting our Podbean page at whatstheres.podbean.com slash premium. Uh, we're up to eight debates that we've published on there. Uh, also, we do a weekly live debate over CastBox's live cast program. That goes out uh, in the moment. It's not recorded. You'll have to listen to it when it's there or it's gone. If you want to check out uh, that, uh, you can find access to that by liking us on any of our social media pages. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Reddit at what's the res underscore and on Facebook at facebook.com slash what's the res. Well, today is an interview episode, and I am very excited to welcome Bob Luddy to What's the Res. Mr. Luddy is a founder, at, or is the founder and president of Captive Air, the global leader in kitchen ventilation technologies. In addition to actively running his business, Bob is an educational entrepreneur. He started St. Thomas More Academy, a private Catholic classical school here in Raleigh, North Carolina, the Franklin Academy Network of Charter Schools, and Thales Academy, a private network of secular classical academies. Bob has been an enormous supporter of debate, both at Thales and through the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, so much so that every year students are competing for the Robert Luddy slash Calvin Coolidge Cup in Vermont. Bob, welcome to the program. Awesome. Oh, delighted to be here, Josh. Uh, it's, it's been so wonderful working for you these years, and I, I hope we have a, a great conversation here today. I'm looking forward to it. Well, uh, tell our audience a little bit of your story. Uh, have you always been entrepreneurial? How, how did you get started in all of this? You know, when, as young as 11 years old, uh, from the influence of my uncle, who was an early stage entrepreneur in our family, I decided that's what I want to be, an entrepreneur. So I had all types of small jobs, whether it was paper route, delivering circulars, uh, working in restaurants, and... And it was a really amazing uh, learning experience for me. But my ambition always was to be an entrepreneur. Now, looking for the right opportunity is always a challenge for entrepreneurs. Sure. So we're, we went from uh, delivering papers to starting one of the most successful companies in America today. What? How, how did you make that move? Well, when I was in college, I w was in a small business with a partner, and we made fiberglass reinforced plastic. So particularly in my last two years of college, I knew firsthand about manufacturing and making fiberglass is challenging at best. It's a difficult business, but I learned, and I had to sell that business when I was drafted into the military. Oh, I didn't know you were uh, drafted in the military. Oh, which, yeah. Which, I, which war? Uh, Vietnam. Okay. So as soon as I lost my college deferment after college, huh. um, I was immediately drafted, put on a uh, train from Philadelphia to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, I was very fortunate in that I was in the infantry, but because I had a degree in finance, at some later point when I went to Vietnam, I was put in the first log command, and I survived the war, and I'm here to uh, talk about education. <laughs> My goodness. I had no... I, I, I feel ashamed that I've missed this over the years. I had no idea you, you had served in the, in the military. Well, that was my introduction to North Carolina was Fort Bragg. 
So without the army moving you down here, none of this would have happened in a way. That's very possible. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, a change is opportunity, as we know. <laughs> That's so true. Now, does does I know one of the things that uh, I most appreciate about Thales is that uh, is your commitment to uh, traditional American values. Does your time in the military has that did that shape your commitment to want to have education be moving towards uh, maintaining those traditional American values? Absolutely. Uh, a couple of important things I learned in the military is we have more physical and mental capabilities than we can ever dreamed of. Mm. So the military pushes you as as far as you can go, but what you learn in the process is you're really never worn out. You've always got more gas in the tank. <laughs> uh, and you always have more mental ability to solve problems no matter what they are. And that's really what the military does in their operations. So obviously traditional American values, I was drafted during a period of time where some people skipped the draft and went to Canada. Mm-hmm. Our family believes in this country. Uh, I wasn't anxious to go to Vietnam, but I did it. And um, that that's what we believe. And I think Western values uh, are wonderful. We, America is such a great company country. You know, we have a few warts, and people t- tend to focus on what's wrong, but there's a lot right about America. They're good people. They're well-educated. They're innovative. So 300 million people produce 24%, or about one-quarter of the GDP in the entire world. Wow. That's an amazing story. It's never happened in the history of the world. So I'm a, a, a huge believer in American Western values and... I certainly want to pass that along to our students. Mm, fantastic. Well, do, do help us know with how, where, where, how you made the move. I'm, I'm fascinated by mm. it. seems like some of the most successful people, some of them focus on being incredibly skilled at one area of life, really good at this business or really good at writing or and so on. But you've obviously made a move into different spaces. So what, what prompted you to move from captive air to uh, deciding, you know what, today I'm going to start a school? Mm. What, was, what was that move like? Well, one of the things that we observed is that individuals did not have the skills that they needed. In some cases, we even hired people that were good people. They wanted to work hard. Uh, But in some cases, they didn't know their alphabet. In other cases, uh, they didn't know fractions. So if somebody's working on sheet metal and they don't know fractions, it's a problem. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And I I was very shocked by this because my father was a mathematician and we just assumed, and, and we're Irish, so Irish tend to be literate. Uh, we just assumed everybody was that way. And so I realized that somewhere within our system, we're depriving too many students of the American opportunity. Hmm. And that really made me upset. Actually, it made me mad. Uh, so somewhere around 97, I was really upset about it. And I said, I'm going to do something. So I opened Charter School, Franklin Academy. Hmm. Still operating 22 years later, 1,650 students. And in the second year, it was the school everybody wanted to get into in Wake Forest. Mm. So that's how quickly it came about. And we were just using basic principles. People talk about innovation all the time. People learned how to read hundreds and thousands of years ago. (laughs) I mean, how much innovation do we need? We need to teach them how to read. We need to teach them how to compute. Uh, This started back 2,500 years ago, so there's not much innovations needed. What's needed is good execution Mm. and teaching students reading, writing, math, phonics, communications. So really then, your your success really came out of focusing on the basics. Absolutely. Wow. And you know, the same thing in Captive Air. We focused on what does the customer really need, how are we going to deliver it, 
and it's mostly basics, and most of management, if you think about it, is common sense. Mm. So you can read all the management books in the world, and there's some good things in there, but most of it is common sense and common decency. Well, hopefully, uh, maybe by uh, you, from that, that advice, people will listen, and uh, maybe common sense will become a little bit more common. Well, we would hope so. <laughs> well, uh, Bob, I know you've been a, an amazing supporter of debate for many years, and I, I'm just curious as to why. What is it about debate that gets your support? I mean, I know there's lots of things that you could be you could be a fan of, but the Coolidge Cup competition that I've gone to for two years now wouldn't happen without your support. All the stuff we do here at Thales with debate wouldn't happen without your encouragement. So what is it about debate that gets your gets your? But think about any business or any idea you have only comes to fruition through sales, through presentation, through debate. So you can have the best ideas in the world. If you can't communicate them, you can't debate them, and you can't win the day, they just die. So sometimes the best technologies don't win in the marketplace. Sometimes the smartest people don't prevail. Uh, I took debate in college, and the one thing that I really remember that was profound, and it was drilled into our head by our debate professor, and he said, when you debate, you line up, he called it, the ducks you can shoot down cleanly. (laughs) (laughs) So he says, you line up the ducks that you can just completely shoot them down cleanly, no equivocation whatsoever. Mm. Now you've put your opponent in a position where he's got to attack your, your strongest suits. Think about if you're playing bridge. Uh, not so easy. Whereas if you debate and you, you get a little fuzzy and you don't put up your strong suits, a good debater on the other side is just going to tear you to pieces. So true. So I, I learned a lot about debate from that instructor. And I realized in in sales, you have to be able to present your case logically in a way that a rational person can say, this makes sense, Mm. and I'll buy your product or your technology or or your idea. If students, it's imperative. I don't care how smart they are, how much knowledge they have. If you can't communicate it, you can't debate, it's not going anywhere. Um, Mises talked about uh, we gain knowledge, we think about it, but we have to act. We have to execute. If we fail to execute, then all the thinking and all the preparation we had is just going to ground. Hmm. So that's that's my background in terms of debate. Oh, that's fascinating. And that's 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 going back that's going back many years. I mean, that's that's kind of amazing to think about the fact that I was a debate professor then. As <laughs> uh, he, he kind of planted that seed that that bore such fruit uh, in, in you and your organizations. Uh, that that's wonderful. Now, uh, tell, tell us a bit more about uh, Ludwig von Mises and the effect he's had on you. As it, I know I've, I've heard you reference the Austrians uh, several times over the years. So wh- what is it about the Austrian School of Economics that you mm-hmm. find appealing? Well, I gave a talk down at uh, Campbell University in 1989. And the professor at Campbell was Bill Peterson, who was a student and colleague of Mises. I didn't at that time know anything about Mises. And so Dr. Peterson began to teach me about Austrian economics his relationship with Mises. And one of the things I like about Austrian economics, and by the way, there's no Austrian economists in Austria, because they (laughs) they all left in 1938 because Mises was Jewish. He had to get out of town when Hitler came in. But the School of Austrian Economics was developed at the University of Vienna in Austria up until 1938. And what I like about it, it's totally free market, it's libertarian, and they seek the truth. 
And if you get into a debate with an Austrian economist, you better know your facts because they're, they are going to be right at the truth and they're going to have tremendous theory and factual information. So to me, this is what I love. Uh, really good understanding of how the world works. And if you look at Austrian economics, while it's not generally accepted by many economists, it's the way the world works. Mm. Uh, I think we're learning that today with trade wars. Nobody ever wins trade wars. Uh, and, and most economists do understand that. But we have a whole range of people in our country today that say, we can win this trade war with China. We will absolutely be a loser along with China. <laughs> Uh, we did. I uh, know that was a that was a big topic this past summer with the uh, the Coolidge resolution, oh, yeah. unilateral free trade. Uh, we did an interview. I did an interview with uh, our local economist here at Thales Rollsville, Tyler Bonin, on uh, the trade war with China. He said much the same thing. That and uh, for any of our listeners, that's uh, back in our season one catalog of episodes. Uh, but that that is absolutely fascinating. Because I was looking at the headlines. Um, that that's only getting worse as time goes on. Like we're not. It's not that we're somehow beating China. It's like. We're both losing. Is that, is that right? Yeah, we haven't seen the worst of it either because trade wars are insidious, and particularly today, even more so than any time in the past, in that business is so interconnected worldwide. For example, we buy motors from Brazil and motors from Mexico and from China. We rely on those motors. We buy components from EU, from Canada, from Mexico. Every one of those components is critical, but we manufacture all of our product in the U.S. But if any particular component is missing, we can't ship the product. So you can imagine the challenges that manufacturers have. We, we cannot be shut off from our supply, and those supplies are based on quality, lead times, pricing, technologies, and not easily replaceable. So the idea that we're going to make everything in America is childish. <laughs> At best, uh, that's not how the world works. Uh, wow. we, maybe we should do a um, a follow up podcast sometime, just talking about economics and world trade. Oh, that'd be great! I'd I'd love to do that. We'll have to make that happen. Now, I I think one of the things I think back over, uh, I've, I've I've heard you give several talks over the last few years, and uh, every time you've come to Thales and, and addressed the faculty or or done a big conference, you've always referenced the most recent book that you've been reading, and I've you you strike me as someone who is always learning and continually reading. So uh, I'm curious if is, do you think uh, continually reading, continuing to learn, is that an important trait for leadership? Oh, absolutely. We all need new stimulus. Think about if, you, if we just stayed in this room, we had no new books, we didn't talk to anybody, our thinking would be static. Hmm. But as we get new stimulus, it causes us to th think and rethink and, and connect the dots. So continuation of stimulus and ideas is very important. And I'll give you an example. Uh, ASHRAE is the uh, HVAC industry organization, and they have monthly meetings. And they'll have two seminars. One will be a 15-minute, they call it, technical seminar. And the other will be a presentation, and it'll run a little bit longer. So what I like to do is to go to presentations that are not germane to anything that I know or anything that I'm ever going to use. Because I want to find out how that engineer thinks, what their philosophy is, how they solve problems. And it's surprising how much you learn in this sort of abstract of things that are not general, not exactly germane to what you're doing. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount, and then I put that out to our team and say, I'm going to challenge you. Here's, here's what I learned from this presentation. For example, 
uh, one presentation was about a North Carolina engineer who only engineered hospitals. And he had a set of priorities. He had five priorities. The first priority you would know in a hospital was safety. The Makes second sense. was quality for all systems. And the last priority was cost. So as he gave his presentation, a question came up and said, well, why did you make this decision this way? Uh, and he said, well, let's go back to slide number one. Here's my priorities. They're made exactly to those priorities. And I thought, the logic of this engineer was so beautiful. I've got our engineers doing the same thing. You have to set the priorities, and you make all the reference back, every decision to those priorities. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, that, that sounds a lot like the passage from Aristotle we were looking at in uh, Philosophy and Ethics today, where uh, in uh, the Nicomachean Ethics, Book 1, uh, Aristotle talks about how uh, for every, every good that is achieved, it's achieved because you're aiming for a particular purpose. So if you don't know your purpose, <laughs> you're never going to either, either one of two things will happen. You either will achieve the good, but you won't recognize it because you didn't know that it was the good you were going to achieve, or you'll never achieve that good. Uh, as I think that's, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, are you reading any, any books right now that uh, are worth, worth recommending? Um, I've been reading some books on the interaction between physical fitness and um, intellectual acuity, thinking skills. So if you're not physically fit and alert, so one of the things that I thought about is it, it would probably be a little hard to do, but if every student had to do a, a fast mile walk before school started, they would be more alert. Oh. And if every student ate a proper diet and had the proper amount of sleep, they would learn more because they would be more alert, they would be ready to learn, they would be rested, and they would be sharp. Mm. Because they're mentally and physically ready to learn. So I think um, it's something that uh, I've been working on. We recently did a book review on the whole foods diet. Oh, okay. Uh, yesterday I did a book review on Havart on um, leadership and character and temperament. Mm. So our temperament is pretty much who we are. Our character is something that we develop. And if you look at the um, those two facts... If individuals uh, focused on those, they could improve their character every day, and they could learn how to manage their temperament so they would be more likable and more effective in the marketplace. Fascinating, mm. fascinating. And uh, those are that. Those are. Huh, I may. I may need to find some of those those texts and uh, see if there's ways to incorporate that uh, into some of that into the classroom. Oh, now. Uh, Bob, I know you, you oversee a lot of different people in a lot of different roles. So I'd love if you could tell us uh, just some of the leadership principles you've learned over the years. I mean, what, what leadership principles have really contributed to, to your success in business or in education or in any other area? Well, Captain Bear has a unique management style, uh, which most people may not agree with or understand or maybe appreciate. And essentially, uh, it's the belief in people. So all good things and ideas come from the individual. They don't come from the group. Now, within the group, we are all making contributions, but every one of those contributions is unique to an individual. So it begins with a very high respect for every single individual contributor and a high level of trust in those individuals. Now, that doesn't work perfectly because, you know, with people sometimes we're disappointed, mm. but largely it works really well. So if you look at the structure of Captive Air, half a billion dollar company, we don't have command and control. We have various groups decentralized all over North America that function at an incredibly high level because we have highly competent people 
We trust them. Think about, we have a plant operation in California. At, at most, I get out there once a year. So 150 people are coming to work every day. I'm not talking to them on the phone. Um, I rarely have much communication with them. They're there doing their jobs every single day. We have data on what they're doing. We have a, a sense of what they're doing. We uh, can see if they're shipping on time, what their quality is. So trust in people is imperative. Mm. Providing them a sound philosophy of doing business, what you expect. So you give them your expectations. You find ways and means of monitoring those. Uh, much of it we do now electronically. So the old command and control, uh, the business matrix, the strategic planning, I don't use any of that because it's not needed. I rely on the individual and I trust the individual. Again, sometimes we're disappointed and that can be fixed, uh, but it works incredibly well. So in a sense, everybody feels like they're working for themselves. Hmm. And if someone is working for themselves, uh, they don't watch the 40 hours as closely as they would if some command and control person is hovering down on top of them. So they tend to put more initiative into the work. They think they're working for themselves. And, and they know what they're achieving because their, their uh, accomplishments are recognized. I don't like, I will not allow anybody to take um, credit for something that someone else did. And you know in big corporations and organizations that happens all the time. And that discourages initiative. So trust the individual, give them clear, concise ideas and guidelines what you want. If you look at our application engineering system, it's clear as a bell what we expect to happen. The only question now is, did you do what you were expected to do? And if you do, you will get a great outcome. It's not very complicated. <laughs> That's fantastic. That reminds me a lot of the uh, seminar we were at with uh, John Crosby a, a few months ago. It almost Personalism. It, 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 That's personalism. That's it, what it is. It sounds like a personalist approach to management in a lot of ways. That's exactly what it is. That's Understanding the person, what their capabilities are, nurturing those capabilities, etc., so leadership then is not so much about finding the right person to be at the top as it is equipping and empowering the right people in their various spaces to do the best that they possibly can do. Exactly. The right person at the top has to have the correct uh, skills. Uh, essentially, I don't have to be the best at anything, but I have to be competitive at a wide range of subjects and topics and technologies. And I have to know who to trust and who not to trust. Mm. Sometimes we get it wrong. Uh, Peterson, my mentor, said, Bob, remember, none of us get it all right. So every day I'm thinking of that. I'm not getting it all right. What am I doing wrong here today? And I think it's a good thing that we all ponder because none of us do get it all right. We're humans. We make mistakes. That's true. I think that's that's a good word. I I have several students who... Would uh, they, they would kill themselves for perfection. And one of the lines I try to remind them of regularly is that often perfection becomes the enemy of the good. And no doubt. in a lot of places, uh, doing it well is enough. It doesn't have to be so perfect that you ignore 15 other important things. Exactly. Well, uh, I want to bring this back around to, uh, to debate, if we could. That was a, that was a, a great, uh, great discussion. Uh, do you think debate is important for our current cultural moment for any particular reasons? I certainly do, because if you look at the public sector to debate, it's not really debate. It's just people screaming at each other. If they were debating rationally, um, the voters would understand better. They would appreciate what they're debating about, and they could make a rational decision. 
the public discourse is mostly irrational. It's ad hominem. It's nasty. And, it's, and much of it's irrelevant to really important topics. So were they to be good debaters on topic, we'd have a much better country, and we'd have a lot less strife and grief, and, and people wouldn't uh, be paying so much attention to politics because politics is important. We have to have a government, but what's more important is great people doing their job every day, whether they're teaching or they're making products or they're doctors, whatever they're doing. That, this is what makes the world go around, not politics. Oh, that's fantastic. The, uh, oh, we, we did an episode a while ago focusing on the, uh, the Democratic primary uh, presidential debates, the first round of those. I was surprised. The first night was surprisingly lucid. They were actually discussing back and forth, and they were addressing each other's points. And then uh, some debater terminology would say they had good clash. They actually interacted with each other. The second night was just moments for talking points, and they wanted to hit their sound bites, and it was so much less engaging. I found the first night much more educational and much more enjoyable because they actually went back and forth and addressed each other's points, and, and I learned a bit about where each of them stood. But the second night was much more the typical presidential nominee debate, unfortunately. Maybe you should send them a memo on that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. And that would be very helpful. Uh, maybe, maybe Beto O'Rourke will listen to this <laughs> podcast and, and, and learn some things about actual ideas instead of uh, just looking pretty. Uh, well, are there any topics that you would like to see students debate that you haven't seen them touch, touch on yet? Uh, one of the things we, we talked about this week was maybe letting students talk about whatever's timely in the news. Uh, for example, uh, now we have a uh, potential currency war. Currency wasn't so much in there, and all of a sudden the Chinese are currency manipulators. Well, are they or aren't they? I think that would be a really good debate topic. Oh. Um, but anything that's topical in the news, because that, that news is hitting the students, mm -hmm. and it would be nice for them to discuss it rationally so they really understood um, what the correct answers are. Oh, interesting. And, and they can get there through rational debate. Mm -hmm. They certainly can. Uh, so uh, let me uh, at least briefly pick your brain on the uh, just-released uh, Coolidge resolution. Uh, so for the, our, our tournament here on September 7th, we'll be uh, debating, uh, uh, quote, the state of North Carolina should offer targeted tax incentives to businesses that relocate major parts of their operations to North Carolina. Any thoughts on that as a, as a resolution? I do have thoughts on that. Um, I'm absolutely opposed to these, uh, what essentially is crony capitalism. It's not real capitalism if the uh, government is subsidizing you. If you went back to, and you can Google this, 1820, they had what was called the American system. So the founders wanted to have a separation between business and government. And that's the way our Constitution set up. But then there was a group after the... Uh, founders that wanted to have this close relationship between business and government. That leads to trouble. So why are people mad at the pharmaceutical industry and the automobile industry and so on? Because they're closely related. Uh, you see it with Boeing right now. Um, between Boeing and the FAA, there's not enough separation, and it led to trouble, right? Mm -hmm. There should be absolute uh, separation. So that's a really good topic. For example, if we want to list a product, we send it to the ETL labs or the UL labs, and they test it, and they say yay or nay. You either passed or you didn't. That, that's a fair measure of that product. If we could lobby with them 
uh, to get it to get it approved, <laughs> it would be nonsense. So we respect the testers, and and we actually like the separation, because if they find something wrong with our product, we want to know first before that product goes to market. Um, so I think it's a worthy debate. Uh, government should not be giving handouts to businesses for any reason whatsoever. So I would, you, I would love to debate that topic. Oh, fantastic! Well, uh, we, we, if, if if you'd like to debate it, we could have <laughs> we could have you on our uh, we we have a uh, another section of the podcast where we actually do uh, debates between people on on uh, on these topics, and uh, we actually it's our our small attempt to monetize the podcast. Those episodes are for sale for three dollars a month or thirty dollars a year. But uh, if you wanted to come on and uh, debate that topic, I'd I'd I don't know if I could play your opponent or I'd find somebody else. Maybe we get Mr. Bonin as our uh, local, or Tyler Bonin as our economist, to, uh, uh, you guys could debate each other on that if, if that was something you were interested in. Yeah, I'd, I'd be delighted to. Oh, that'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. I'd love to moderate that debate. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and maybe we should uh, probably wrap this up. We're, we're coming towards the end of our time today. But, Bob, what advice would you uh, offer to new debaters? We've got a bunch of middle schoolers this year who are trying out debate, high schoolers debating for the first time. What advice would you give to them? One is I would learn as much as you can about the subject. And then second, I would use your logic skills to determine what are your best arguments. And I would focus all my energy on those best arguments. And then I would, I would try to understand on the rebuttal what's going to come up and how you're going to defend against that. If you can do those things, you can win most debates. Oh, that is great advice. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been really fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Josh. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My guest this episode has been Mr. Bob Luddy, founder of Captive Air, St. Thomas More Academy, Franklin Academy, and Thales Academy. Bob is also the author of Entrepreneurial Life, The Path from Startup to Market Success. You can find his book on Amazon. We'll have the link in the show notes on our website. Uh, if you want to learn more about Captive Air, you can do that by going to CaptiveAir.com. That's spelled C-A-P-T-I-V-E-A-I-R-E.com. If you want to know about the unique brand of classical education happening at Thales Academy, you can check that out at thalesacademy.org. That's T-H-A-L-E-S-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y.org. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. We'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us by email at whatstheres at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at the hashtag at whatstheres underscore. You can also get in touch with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstheres. Next week, we'll be back with three resolution analysis episodes. We'll be focusing on the Coolidge resolution I read earlier. We'll also be looking at the public forum resolution that dropped today about uh, whether or not the European Union should join the Belt and Road Initiative. And we'll be looking at the Lincoln-Douglas resolution uh, on uh, whether or not colleges should use standardized testing to evaluate admissions for undergraduate studies. So we'll, uh, we'll have those ready, and uh, the 2019-2020 competitive season will be off, uh, off to a great start. Be sure to join us for those episodes. Until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.